right. Okay. Now, I know there's at least one question for this morning, um, but we'll open it up with any questions from Psalm 4. Any questions from Psalm 4? Any, any questions from Psalm 4? No? I thought you had a question. No? Yes? You told me at the coffee pot. You had a question. Uh, yes, I assumed that was because you had a question. No. Oh. <laughs> just wanted to, just out of curiosity, no particular reason. Are we doing a Q&A? Okay, okay. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> any, any questions from Psalm 4 this morning? Any, any thoughts or anything from that? Yeah, I got oh, Zach. So, um, for the Salah. Yeah, um, yeah. We're not entirely sure. Part of, the, part of the difficulty with some of the psalms is some of the technical, liturgical, and musical terms are difficult to understand their function. Part of that, part, I'll say something interesting. Part of that, go to Psalm 4 in your Bible. Um, you can ask Daniel about this. I mean, we'll take a little detour. Um, part of that is Daniel Moore did his um, THM dissertation on the issue of psalm titles. Um, their authenticity. Are they authentic? Yes, they are. And then the issue of where they belong. This is really fascinating. I, there's a lot of terms. You, you, you'll hear the inscriptions. This is a sh- Shigion of David. And what is a Shigion? David's getting his Shigion, you know. Um, and, 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 and so some of these terms like Salah, we've got to sort of guess by context. As best as we can tell, probably some sort of musical interlude or some pause or break. We can't be certain about it. Um, the more we study the Psalms, the better. But here's the thing. Thirtle's theory of Psalm titles, okay? Now understand the book of Psalms was written without Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3 written in. It's just an uninterrupted text, okay? Book of Psalms as it's compiled. It's an uninterrupted text. And so we are dividing the Psalms out as best we can. Now we get from Acts, Peter refers to the second Psalm, so that, that gives us some insight. But one of the things that's interesting, keep, keep your finger here, turn over to the book of Habakkuk. Okay? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Minor prophet. Because um, Habakkuk, I mentioned this morning that the Bible has other songs than the book of Psalms. Habakkuk contains a psalm. And what's really interesting in Habakkuk is dealing with this issue of psalm titles is Habakkuk's psalm, okay? So Habakkuk chapter three. Now, like I said, Daniel Moore is really the uh, expert on this, but uh, I've talked to him some about this and I'm, I'm sold on it. So notice Habakkuk, all of Habakkuk three is a song and it receives a title. Psalm, Habakkuk three, verse one. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Whatever that means. And then you read through the psalm, but look at verse 19, what's at the end of verse 19. There's also a postscript to the choir master with strained instruments. So the song is a prescript and a postscript. The prescript gives authorship and potentially the topic 
or, or some, we're not sure what a sh- according to Shigianoth is. And then the postscript is musical. It has musical instrumentation. It's the musical information to the choir master, and this is a song apparently to be strung with stringed instruments. So get that. There's a prescript and a postscript. The prescript deals with authorship and perhaps the, the occasion of the song, and the postscript is liturgical and musical direction. Now go back to Psalm 4, okay? So that's the pattern we get from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or however you want to say that. If, that, if this is Thurtle's theory that Daniel's run with, and I think he's right, that means then that even though our Psalm 4 starts with to the choir master with stringed instruments, given the pattern of Habakkuk, that really should be the last line of Psalm 3. You with me? Which is why when I read Psalm 4 this morning, I started with a Psalm of David. But that also means, go to Psalm 5, that the end of Psalm 4 if Thurtle's theory of psalm titles, if the pattern of Habakkuk holds up, because the beginning of five is musical by nature. To the choir master for the flutes, really, would be the last line of Psalm 4. So when you start a psalm, if, if what you're seeing is musical, according to Thurtle's theory, that would actually attach to the preceding psalm. And if it doesn't, like look how Psalm 3 starts. Of David, when he fled from Absalom. That's authorship, an occasion that properly is the beginning of Psalm 3. But if the first line in the heading is musical in nature, according to Thirtle's theory, it attaches to the psalm before it. The reason I bring that up is part of the reason I think we have a struggle and a hard time understanding some of the terms is we might be attaching them to the wrong psalms. So if we're trying to figure out what a Shigianoth is or, or what the, according to the Almayoth is, if we're attaching it to the wrong psalm, that might explain some of the confusion. Like, let me give you one example where this is pretty cool and it, and it actually gives some, gives some sort of... Meaning, go to Psalm, um, yeah, go to Psalm 45, okay? Now, let's take Psalm, let's take Thirtle's theory and apply it. So we begin Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskil, okay? And we'd say, okay, that belongs with Psalm 44, Psalm 45, then, according to Thirtle's theory, would properly begin, of the sons of Korah, a love song. Okay? And what we have here is a royal marriage psalm. Let's just read it. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured, out upon, is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in, the splendor and, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. So there's a royal marriage, and the king is now being lifted up and, and glorified for his power and his wisdom and they're calling on him to rule well. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprighteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. This guy's a big deal. He's got daughters of kings or guests at his wedding. And then they turn their attention, whoever's singing turns their attention now to to the the bride. 
Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty since you, he is your Lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The riches of people, all glorious, and the princess in her... All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with joy and gladness. They are led along as the king as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. They will make them princes on the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So we've got this celebration of the royal marriage. Now, it's interesting. If Thirtle's right, keep reading. To the choir master of the sons of Korda, according to Alma'oth. Now, do you know what? You probably don't know what Alma'oth is. It's the plural for virgins. If Thirtle's right, then this is meant to be sung by a virgin choir at the wedding. Isn't that pretty cool? Does that, does that fit? Picture a virgin choir praising the beauty of the king, instructing the, the wife. Yeah, that sort of makes a better fit. So there's things like that. There's a lot of little things like that. These aren't huge. It's not like unlocking mysteries of the Bible, but it does like, that fits pretty well. That makes a lot of sense, you know? And so in a way that having a virgin choir sing Psalm 46 wouldn't, be as, wouldn't make as much sense. So it, I think it works. Like I said, Daniel did a ton of research on this, did his THM dissertation on d- deeping and developing Thirtle's theory of psalm titles. But the, I can't imagine ever in a sermon mentioning this, so I took the little aside now to do this. But Yes. I want to say something. Yeah. Like do it. Even more. Yes. Uh, if, if you look at it, either, either a Jewish Bible or a Catholic Bible, yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, with, verse, with, with Psalm 4, yeah. that to the chief musician on the Magnetic Opera, Psalm of David, yep. that is verse 1. Yep. Of all, of, in, yes. In both yes. Yes. Versions, yes. And hear me when I call it verse 2. Yep. Yep. And, and that's a recurring pattern throughout yep. the book. Yeah, the Hebrew, the Hebrew numbers of the verses, this, this doesn't muddy it as much. The Hebrew, the verse divisions were added in the 9th century. Um, and different people have added the verse divisions in differently. The, the Hebrew Bible counts the psalm title as verse 1. So if you're reading Hebrew, or if I'm reading, I see this when I'm reading commentaries, because they'll put both numbers, you know, verse 3, and then it'll be like verse 4 in the Hebrew, you know, and they'll, it'll go on. But yeah, the, he, the, the and apparently the Catholic Bible follows suit with that. The verse numbering is off. David or David did not write verse 1. These are just our ways of keeping track. So it's not that they have a different text. They put the verse numbers in at different points. There's nothing different in the text. Yes, Dan? So, say next Sunday you're reading Psalm 45. Yep. Would you go through it and say, well, really this is to be sung by a choir of virgins? Yeah, that's, that'd, be, that'd be my thinking as it stands. Like I said, I've, I've done enough to be sold on it. The guy who's done the real research and can back it up is Daniel Moore. Um, but I, I've read part of his dissertation. We've talked about it a number of times. But as I've compared it and compared it and compared it, it works. It works well. And there's other people that have taken this up. It's not something he came up with. Thirtle in the 1920s did the most extensive work on it. And since then, it's been largely left alone. Not refuted, not contradicted, just ignored. And so um, Bill Barrick, the head of the uh, Old Testament program at Masters, said, you know, somebody needs to pick this up and run with it. And Daniel said, and he did. Um, so that's pretty cool. Let me give you one other example here. One other example where it makes some sort of significance. Hold on. Um, let me find that. Got lines here. Yeah, go to Psalm 55. And 57. Yes, both are good examples. Okay. And again, 
This isn't like Bible codes. We're not trying to find like secret hidden meanings. It's just ways things fit together better. But part of the reason I think why you have such a difficult time with the terms is it would stand a reason for trying to figure out from context what a Shigianoth is. If we're attaching it to the wrong psalm, that would explain why we have a hard time understanding what it means. Because the only way we're going to figure out what these precise musical terms mean is by seeing what they have in common in context. So it would be big to attach them to the right psalms. So Psalm 55. We're not going to read all Psalm 55. Now, if Thirtle's right, look at the beginning of Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, which might be some melody or some musical um, grouping, but it's some sort of musical term, um, just like we'll play hymns to various melodies. So, so there's some sort of reference to the doves on far-off terebinths. Look at 55, verse 6 and 7. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would, not, I would lodge in the wilderness. So it would make sense for the dove theme or the dove melody or whatever this is referenced to to be fitting in the hymn that in part of it cries out, oh, that I could be like, do you see how that fits together nicely? It's not like hugely unlocking new and deep meaning. It's just, oh, yeah, that works. Just like 57 starts off with the choir master according to do not destroy a mitkim of David um, would then go back and, and fit, fit with that. But there's just another little example, but Daniel's got a lot of them lined up. So this isn't like earth-shattering, quaking, breaking stuff, but I do think from my looking at the examples, it does fit together better, and the divisions we've made are just guesses. The person who put the chapter divisions in just, you know, okay, there's a new chapter. Like, for instance, I, say, I think Psalm 42 and 43 are really one psalm. I wouldn't put a division between, when I preached it. Go to Psalm 42 and 43. Um, so we're not talking about altering the text in any way. The text remains. What we're trying to figure out is where does one song begin and one song end? Um, and so Psalm 42, very familiar, right? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God, right? And what happens is the pattern of Psalm 42 is David cries out in his anguish, and then there's a chorus that gets repeated. You see that in verse 5. He, he speaks to himself. He responds to his anguish. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then we get another pouring out of his heart. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Um, deep calls to deep. But then he gets down to verse 11, and here's the chorus again. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Word for word, we've got a chorus. Look at Psalm 43, with no superscription in between, Right? Because one of the ways we can tell we got a division is when we get those introductions and those liturgical endings. There is none. For either, it just flows into 43. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. And then notice the similarity in 43.2 and 42.9. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Look at verse 9 of 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Then keep going, 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? 
Open God. It's the exact same chorus, the exact same pattern. I would suggest Psalm 43 is really the third progression of this pattern where he pours out his lament and he comes back to why are you downcast? There's nothing I see in here that suggests they're separate psalms. I think somebody in the ninth century made an error. Um, so, yeah. Right, right. Right. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't think I'm actually right. I think the, the, the I think the chapter, someone with a, tablet or an iPhone to figure this out. One of them is the ninth century and one of them is later than that because it wasn't chapters and verses at the same time. It was first chapters and then later the verses. So if somebody wants to figure that out, they can. Let me just reassure you a couple things. In no case with any of this discussion is the text of the Bible being debated. Everyone is agreement on what the text is. So it's not like, what does the Bible say? That, that's, there's no question about that. What we're trying to figure out is, okay, when does one song begin and one song end? And when the songs don't have those superscriptions, it's hard for us to tell. Where there is a superscription, it's clear. When you see, a, a, to the choir master, we either know something's beginning or ending, depending on where you stand on Thirtle's theory. Clearly, we've got a, a new song, right? Or of David, when we get those types of things, we know we're starting a new song. But in 43, I, I think it's either the sequel to Psalm 42, or more likely, it's just the completion of Psalm 42. But either way, we've got the Word of God. The Word of God hasn't changed. It's, it's simply our, our, our making those little chapter divisions. Yes, Alyssa? Oh, what year? When did it happen? Awesome. Okay. The chapter divisions are from the 13th century. Okay. Okay, so they weren't even used. The divisions weren't used until the 14th century. The ninth. Oh, 14. Well, 15th century. I, I was off. Sorry. So 13th, 14th, 15th century is when the chapter and verse divisions get added. Bob. Was the first to divide the New Testament into standard numbers in 1655? 16th century. So between the 14th and 16th century is when the divisions were added in. So relatively recently, given the scope of things. Um, I was within 500 years, yeah. Now, if Joel were here, he could tell us all about it, because that was his childhood. That's dirty. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm teasing. I'm just joking. No, no. If Daniel were here, he could tell us all about it. So, yes, yes. <laughs> See, I'm just hoping a bunch of you guys walk up to Daniel and just say, hey, I was, so tell me this more about this Thirtles theory. And he'd just look at you like, what? What did you hear about that? That'd be fantastic. Thirtle. Thirtle's theory of psalm titles. Any, okay, any other questions on Psalm 4, the psalms in general? Um, thank you for letting me take my little aside. I think it's really interesting stuff, but um, 
Um, yes. Well, no, well, well, okay, it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, every word of Scripture has meaning and purpose. So if a particular psalm is meant to be sung by a virgin choir, the Almayoth, then that, there's information there. Now, is that going to be critical? Is that going to be like, the text, the psalm could mean this, or it could mean 180 degrees differently, all dependent on, is it this psalm that the virgins are supposed to sing, or this one? You know, th- that's not going to happen, but certainly, if, if Thirtle's right, it certainly develops and richens the theme. We've got a royal wedding, and how fitting that there's a virgin choir praising the, the handsomeness and the valor of the king, giving counsel to the wife. I, mean, I think it, it, it's information, and so I don't want to say information's insignificant, but it doesn't radically affect the meaning of the psalm if you go the other way with it. It's not like, oh, this changes everything. So no, it, it's, it's worth, the work is worth doing. But I don't think we're to suddenly, I thought it meant one thing and now it means another. I don't think it's going to be that. I'd say it's probably the difference between deaf and high deaf, adding more clarity, more precision. But we should care about these things because it is the text. Um, and we should care rightly about the text. So I'm glad somebody's doing it and I'm glad it wasn't me doing it. I'm glad to benefit from Daniel's research and not have to do it myself. Um, yes, Lucas. Oh, yeah, a lot of hymns, a lot of hymns are based off of the Psalms, a lot of hymns. And I, and I personally, you guys probably know me that Sons of Korah is one of my favorite music groups. It sh- God gave us 150 songs. It's probably a good idea for us to sing them. And so when people take the Psalms, put them to music, when people incorporate the Psalms to music, that's, that's probably a good thing. I, don't, I think we have, there are some people who think we should only sing the Psalms. I don't know if anyone ever met somebody in a church that only sings the Psalter. Okay. It's, it's more of a reformed Presbyterian circles. It's the regulative principle. And, and I never heard of the regulative principle. Zeb has, of course Zeb has, okay. Um, in short, no, no, now I want you to get this because it's not legalism. There are people who do this and you might think, oh, that sounds legalistic. No, the, the regulative principle is this question. When it comes to worshiping God, or as we read in Psalm 4 today, offering right sacrifices, do we are we free to worship God in any way that Scripture doesn't prohibit? Or are we free to worship God in only those ways that Scripture prescribes? When we gather to worship, is the principle you can worship and set up your church service any way you want as long as it doesn't violate Scripture? Or do we say we are only to do those things that God calls on us to do? And there are some who take the regular principle one way or the other. So for those who take the regular principle, God, they'd say God's given us 150 songs to sing. Do you, do you know them all? Do I know them all? Then we probably don't need to be writing new ones. Why don't we just sing the 150 songs God gave us and trust that he gave us enough songs? Now, I, I don't agree with that limitation, but I can respect the mentality. I don't think it's legalism. It's a desire to say, look, before we move on to these new songs we've got, why don't we work with the ones he gave us? And there's something about that that I like. You know, um, if only God could have given us a mighty fortress. <laughs> you know, no, he gave us 150 songs. Um, let's start there. I think that's wonderful. Um, but in the regular principle, they're not going to do other things. So the scripture's calling us to do the public reading of scripture in Timothy, but we're not going to be doing things scripture doesn't give us to do. I, I do think there's more of a freedom in the worship service, um, to util- utilizing our gifts 
I don't hold to the regulative principle, but um, yes, Jim. Oh dear. Oh dear. The drums are in the psalms, symbols and things, you know? Um, what? Yes, yes. The fear of man brings a snare, which is why there's no drums in church. Okay, all right. What? Um, so, oh, sorry, yeah. I've seen a number of hands. Yeah, no, go, go. Oh yeah, yeah. They're, they're, well, the yeah in Israel's life, worship and war and everything were all intertwined, which is why when the armies are getting ready to battle Jericho, they do a religious ceremony and get circumcised. So there wasn't any clear division of one thing and the other. So yeah, they're, they're all intertwined. The, the Levites would go out and worship, and there were instrumentalists who were, were, were they had a band, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and David danced, and we got to deal with that one too. You know, okay. Um, yes, Elsa. Yes. That would, if that's correct, then what that, that theory is purporting is that Salah should not properly be part of the inspired text. So I'd have a problem with that. Um, no, no. I'd have, but, no, because the Bible that Jesus received, that Jesus' Jesus Bible, the Old Testament, he absolutely thought cover to cover is the Word of God. And the Bible that Jesus had and read absolutely had Salah in it. So by Jesus' authority, those Salahs are there. Um, what we need to do is just basically, you would need to do an inductive study of every psalm that has Salah, find out the common element. It would just be a massive undertaking. But as best as the, the progress we've made is some sort of pause, some sort of interlude, some sort of thoughtfulness. So go, go to Psalm 4. I'll give you an example. It, you read that in, it kind of makes some sense. When David says something that he wants you to stop and consider before moving on, it makes sense. So the, the first Salah is after he rebukes the, um, those who are being faithless in verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And so if, if the notion of a pause or an interlude is correct, then it might be allowing time for that rebuke to sting in, to sting and to settle in, so that then when he starts in verse 3 giving them instruction, in essence correcting them, the rebukes had a chance to sort of do its work, and now maybe they're ready for some correction. He's just told them they're, they're making God ashamed, they're shaming God, they're pursuing lies and vain things that hang in there for a second. Let's pause, chew on that. Okay, now know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Um, and then that would also make sense in verse four when he calls on them to humble themselves. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your own beds and be silent. Salah. And now, now maybe you'll be in a position where you can obey God and trust him. It possibly might have that meaning. Or, it, it, you know, we're, we're working on understanding Salah, but that'd be the suggested meaning of how that would factor into the psalm. Yes, Bridget. Yes. I think I have. Yes, so we always start with the psalm, 
Yeah, if you, if you guys, are the Hardys here? They, did they do something else? They left. Uh, okay. But no, it's Carol, because he's actually a, a skilled pianist, unlike me on a guitar. Um, he'll sometimes put an interlude in. If you've noticed, there is a hope, there's an interlude. That would be the equivalent of maybe what we're suggesting Salah means. Like, let's just let the music play for a minute and give it a little break, you know? Um, let's, we've, we've had enough truth, let's chew on it for a minute, and then we'll move forward. That's the suggested understanding of Salah. I just can't get absolutely dogmatic on it. Yes, Alyssa? Mm. Yep. And again, Daniel's the one you should go pepper your questions with. One other, one other interesting feature of the Psalms, though, did you know that the Psalms are divided into five books and that's not an arbitrary division? Most people think it's to correspond to the five books of Moses, but turn to Psalm 41. There is, there is um, markers in the text to indicate these divisions. Um, Psalm 41 ends in verse 13 with a formulaic doxology. 41.13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. All right? Now go to Psalm 72. Verse 18, 19, and 20. Ends with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And then we got that double amen. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Then turn to Psalm 89. 89. Verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. And then finally, go to Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, verse 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, let all the people say amen, praise the Lord. So we've got a very, very similar closing doxology. That, that, so we've got textual indications that divisions are being made, that four times, dividing into five sections, um, the book of Psalms gets this coda, um, breaking it into books. The first two, the books of David, which not that all of David's Psalms are included there, but the, he's the predominant author of books one and two of the Psalms. And then um, it shifts um, throughout the rest of the books, which is why when we went through Psalms, I picked five or six from the first book of Psalms. We did those. Then we did First Timothy. Then I picked five or six from book two of the Psalms, and then we did Titus. Then I picked five or six from book three of the Psalms, and we did Second Timothy, and so on. So we did a selection. If you, if you were to go back, there was a rhyme and reason to it. If you go back to our series on Psalms on the, on the internet, there's about five or six a selection from each of the five books of the Psalms is what we've done. And now I'm trying to go back in. My goal would be in the next decade or so to do the entire book of Psalms, coming back four or five at a time and just come back and slowly chip away at Psalms. I love the book of Psalms. Um, that's my plan or goal. We'll see how the Lord gives grace and strength to do that. But any other questions? Yes, Linda. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure, well, the Psalms would have been written in Hebrew. I'm pretty sure Salah is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's, we, we, it's, this is the problem when you deal with an old language. You get technical terms. See, most of us, we can figure out what words mean by context. When we've got a word that's more obscure, we can figure out from context. But it's a technical term. It's a musical term. So we, we have to figure out from context what it means. But it's hard to know exactly what Salah means. Now, from the context we figured out, that's the best suggestion of what it means. And it's probably some truth to it. It's probably, it might be right. But we're still, more work needs to be done. And this is the problem. Who's, who's the person raising their hand to say, I'll do it? To, to study all of these musical terms and figure out what pattern and what similarities they have in their usages. Because that's what you really would need to do is a massive inductive study of the Book of Psalms, 150 chapters, and figure out what Here's all the places Salah shows up. What commonalities do they have? That's how you'd figure out what Salah means. Now, some work's been done to that so far with a suggested meaning of a pause or a break. A lot more work needs to be done. Same thing with the Shigianoths and the Mitkims and all of the other technical terms that just don't show up anywhere else in the Old Testament. And they don't show up anywhere else in Hebrew writing. And so we just need to do... And I do believe it means something. I do believe if we study it enough, we could figure it out. We just need to do a lot more work on it. You can pray that God will raise up other people who aren't me to do that work, um, do their THM dissertations. So, so you can thank Daniel. He picked the ball up. The ball got moved a little further downfield. Sports analogy, all right. Um, and uh, yes, a pig, it, was, it was not. It was, it was pigskin, um, and it was, had points on it. Um, yes, get the first first down. Yes, get the first down. Um, okay. Um, okay. Any other questions in the book of Psalms or Psalm 4 from this? Yes. When you, uh, when you're doing your research yeah. about the anxiety numbers, you said mental illness and air posts, do you think, like, they're all that mental illness? Like, is that the real thing? I think, that's a great question. Okay, the question for the tape is, for those of you who weren't present on my sermon, speaking for the sake of the tape, um, I gave scare quotes to the word mental illness. Um, I certainly, let me start with what I can say. I certainly don't think that the, 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 what's the number I gave? They cited that the 18, no, the 40 million adults all have mental illness. Um, I think it's a much more complicated issue. I certainly think it's overly prescribed as illness. Here's the issue, right? Um, We are embodied spirits, and the medical profession views us primarily as physical organisms. In other words, you're not going to go to a doctor, say, I can't sleep, and his diagnosis is, I think you have unconfessed sin. But how often does unconfessed sin in the guilty conscience keep people awake, right? Fair enough? So there's plenty of... T- so the doctors, that's just not a category that they're going to consider. They're not going to think, I wonder if this is a physical ailment or if this is a spiritual issue. And certainly we know that spiritual issues can cause anxiety and sleeplessness. So minimally, I think it's massively overdiagnosed. Minimally. Um, now we do know that if you, eat, if, I, if you take certain drugs or you eat a lot, drink a lot of caffeine, you'll be anxious. So anxiety certainly can have physical roots. Absolutely it can. Um, so I don't want to say every time you're anxious is a spiritual issue. I'm just, I'm just much more of a... I'm just much more skeptical of the master. The problem is with most of the anxiety disorders, there's no tests that people take to get diagnosed. It's, it's purely you describe symptoms, and so they have no idea what really causes it. They've got some theories behind it. A lot of the science, 
we need to do a lot more scientific work to sort out what issues are, have pathology are physically based and what issues are mental and spiritual based. So I'm not going to try to throw the entire baby out with the bathwater and say all anxiety is spiritual. But I certainly think our culture is massively, massively, massively over-medicating people um, for issues that I think very, very often are spiritual. So that, that makes sense. So I'm not trying to say it never is physical. I certainly, if there's no pathology, I'd want to start with, could this be a spiritual issue? In other words, you can take a test to see if your thyroid's working. We know that thyroid, overactive thyroids can make people depressed, but there's pathology there. There's actual like tests that you can take, like here you can see, where, or someone's got diabetes, so you can see their sugar levels are low and what's going on, like you can actually see it. A lot of this stuff, none of that exists. There's no test you can take. And so we're guessing. And the problem is, the reason they think it's concluded that it's physiological is that when you take a psychotropic drug, you, you feel better. The problem with that logic is, if I sit on a tack, I'm going to experience some pain in my posterior, right? You give me a Vicodin, the pain goes away. You haven't really dealt with my problem. You've masked the pain. What I really need someone to do is to figure out where the tack is and say, you know, take it out, right? So, the, the, my, so what happens is they say, well, you've got whatever disorder. And then they give them some psychotropic drugs, and the psychotropic drugs make them feel better. And see, we've just proven it really was a chemical imbalance. Well, maybe. Or maybe you've just deadened their conscience some more. I don't know. And here's a case where the anxiety isn't from a guilty conscience. The anxiety is just fear, and, and, and the, the, the cure is trusting in God. So I'd want to start where there is no pathology with the assumption, let's see if this is a spiritual issue. And if that still doesn't work, then moving on from there. So that's... It's a complicated question, and I think sometimes Christians either throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say all of this stuff, mental illness is... is the, the, the notion of mental illness, though, is kind of silly. Like, you can catch a mental disease. Like, how does your mind get sick? Your brain can get sick. Your brain can have disease. But your thought... Anyway, sorry. So that's, that was the scare quotes. I'm not trying to throw the baby out in the bathwater and say it's all silly. But it is ridiculously, ridiculously over. Um, I mean, there's some research. I'm reading a book right now on some of this stuff, just talking about statistics of, of how many kids they're medicating with all sorts of stuff. And part of the problem there is we haven't even, these, these drugs have not been around long enough for us to know the long-term side effects. So we don't know. With all these drugs we're giving out, we don't know. We don't have 50, 60 years of data to collect of what it does. So it's, it's kind of frightening how quickly we've jumped to this solution when we don't fully understand what we're doing. But anywho, yes? Let me, let me throw out a couple of statistics that tie in with what you're yes. saying. Yes. When I first started my medical practice, the most commonly prescribed drug at that time was Valium, which was an anxiety drug. Right now it's hydrocodone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hydrocodone is a much stronger than Valium, yes? But by the way, there's, I was going to plug this. Um, there's a conference coming up at Sailorville Baptist Church. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, the Sweets, um, the Starmers, ourselves, we went to a, a biblical counseling training. Um, the organization at that time was called NANC, the National Association of Duthetic Counseling. They've since changed their name to the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, or ACBC. You can get on the highway to well. Um, and... <laughs> Okay, sorry. I just thought ACBC was just... Every time I hear it, I think ACDC. 
So anyway, sorry. I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be a great theme song. Thank you. Okay. Um, but the, the keynote speaker is a guy who was at our thing, Charles Hodges. Do you remember him? There's a DVD of, for free on the back table there. Um, and and um, of, he's done his research. He's a medical doctor on bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression, and where the physical issues are and whether or not. And I, I thought his work on that is excellent. There's a DVD on the table dealing with that called Good, Fe- Good Feeling, Bad Feeling. And, I, and it's free to take. You can check it out. But that'll help answer some of your questions. Because because he's trying to sort through this, and his answer is, I do, th- this would be his answer. Um, he thinks our medical tests are not, um, are currently not sophisticated enough to detect some things. And so he's looking at the symptoms. And where you've got bipolar disorder, and it's like six types of bipolar disorder, where you've got the level where people are getting coded messages from their TV, that's, he, he would say, that sounds to me like something is not working right. If you're hearing or seeing things that are not there, that, that probably, I, I, goes, I suspect when we get more sophisticated equipment, we would be able to figure out something's not working right physiologically within you. But at the lower end of the spectrum where you're dealing with people who simply have mood swings, he's saying I, I, there's no pathology that he's seen yet. That sounds much more like a mental discipline, spiritual issue. The Proverbs say like a, like a city that's broken into without walls is the man who has no control over his own spirit. And so you take the picture of a city in, in, in Solomon's days, its defenses are walls. Without walls, what happens? Any roving band of, of thugs can set up shop and rule. A person with no control over their spirit is like that. The heart sends up the happy feeling, and it rules you. And the heart sends up the sad feeling, and it rules you. And the heart sends up the lethargic feeling, and it rules you. You've got no defenses from emotions. They take charge of you. That sounds like a pretty good, at least, starting point, in my mind, a starting framework to deal with here are people who have a hard time resisting their emotions, and they, they fall under the sway, and they can go to the hap. That's a starting point for me. I'd start there. But anyway, he's starting to work through all of it, because it's like six types, and it's fascinating stuff, and it's way off topic, but it's a free resource in the back, on the table in the foyer. Um, good, feel, good feeling or good mood, bad mood, or what is it? Good mood, bad mood. Charles Hodges, he's got a book that I'm partway reading through that so far I've really enjoyed. And I very much appreciated his teaching when I went to that conference a couple years ago. He'll be here. Randy Patton, some other guys will be here up in Sailorville, I think, this winter. And I'd really recommend going. Um, you, Cindy's sat under some of this stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Well, the emotions... Oh. Yeah. Emotions, as, as we understand it biblically, um, are the result generally of thinking. Emotions are the, are the, train, the caboose on the train. Um, I'll give you an example. You go, to, go to Genesis 4. We've got five minutes, so I'll try to handle this quickly. Um, I, view, I view emotions as the fruit on the tree, not the root of the tree. So you go to the first counseling session in history... And it's God talking to Cain, right? First counseling session in history. And God's the counselor. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Which is to say, you're wearing, you've got negative feelings, you've got angry feelings, and your face is expressing those angry feelings. Your face is fallen. Your face is angry. 
um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And then my ESV has a little footnote, number five, and I go down to number five. It says Hebrew literally says, will it not be the lifting up of your face? So God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you, do, if you do well, will your face not lift? If you do what's right, won't you feel better? That's what he's saying. That The feelings are the consequence of the actions and the thinking. Um, so we think things, we believe things, we do things, and then we feel. Our culture's got it backwards. We start with feelings. So I'll give, give you another example. If I open the door and there's a person with a, I use this example a lot, the person with a knife raised up, Depending on whether or not it's Halloween depends on whether or not I'm going to feel fear, right? I have to interpret that event. I don't simply feel. I'm not aware that I'm interpreting it. I don't stop and think, what will I make of this? But at a split second, my brain interprets and makes sense of what I'm seeing. And if it's any other day than Halloween, I think someone's trying to kill me. And if it's Halloween, I think, oh, it's someone in the costume. And my feelings respond to that. Now, where you've got people, you talk about children, when children are sinned against repeatedly, brutalized by parents, abandoned, they are going to interpret that. And they may very well interpret that poorly. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm a piece of junk. No one cares for me. I, I deserve that. They could, and if you thought that, you would have all types of wrong feelings. You would have all types of... In other words, the problem isn't feelings. A problem with emotional problems would mean you should be feeling happy, but you're not. No, the emotions aren't the problem. The emotions indicate the root. So where somebody's had years and years of being sinned against, I wouldn't be surprised that they have huge emotional problems in the sense of their interpretation, how they've made sense of all of this is incredibly skewed, and consequently their feelings are going to be down and depressed and dour. But... but I, I would want to track the emotions are simply indicators of what they're doing and what they're thinking. They may not even be aware of what they're thinking. Again, it's not like the child sat down and said, hmm, how shall I make sense of this? But because but, um, different people can go through the exact same trials differently. Um, people can be, can be beaten and abused and mistreated and yelled at, and they can cower and become fearful. Others can learn the sins of the parents can pass down, and they can do the same thing. They, what they learn from that is you just want to be on the top of the pyramid. You want, to be the, do the, you want to be the one doing the beatings. You don't want to be the one being beaten. You, so some people, that's how they interpret it. You want to be the one holding the stick. Others interpret it differently, and we can stumble over that. Anyway, that's, we can hit this more later, but this is a huge issue. So Absolutely, I think something's there. I don't think the problem is they have emotional problems. I think the problem is they've had to interpret life, and they've had to interpret life year after year after year, and those interpretations get reinforced. And so if you've concluded, I'm a worthless being, and you've concluded that, and that's been reinforced again and again and again and again and again, you are going to have the emotions that go along with that belief, and they will not be pleasant emotions. And so you will be under the sway and grip of those emotions. The solution, I would say, is to get to the belief system of what's the root of the tree that's bearing that fruit. Does that, does that make sense, Connie? That, and that's just, you asked me a hugely complicated question. I give you a four-minute answer. That's my first st- strike at this. But we can talk when there's a lot more to be said. God bless. Have a good day. And, uh, and go to Connie's birthday party in half an hour. <laughs>